want to read this whole chapter. I at least assume that during these Lenten Sundays when we take Leviticus 1 through 5, that for those of you who read the Bible through in a year and skip Leviticus, uh, at least you will have read the first five chapters by the time we're, we're finished. Maybe in subsequent years you'll read with some deep appreciation. Leviticus in chapter 2. Hear the word of God. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. He shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering for the pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now, we're considering these sacrifices during this time of Lent. Uh, first, because, of course, they're in the Bible. Uh, second of all, because they were very significant in the life of ancient Israel. And thirdly, because I think they'd be very significant in our lives as well. We've mentioned that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, meaning that as we read through the Old Testament scripture, uh, we will find their symbols and shadows and foreshadowings of that which is to come in Christ. And so, as we come to understand the Old Testament in light of the New, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the coming of Christ, we should be able to see things about God uh, that should deepen our, not only appreciation of him, but our knowledge of him and our love for him. And so that's why we're, we're doing this. Um, we, um, uh, the, the question that the book of Leviticus uh, brings to us, the question that the book of Leviticus answers for us is this. How is it that God can live among a group of people? How is it that God can live among a group of people? You see, the, the difficulty with God living among people is that he is holy and we are not. And so what is going to happen in that arrangement is either God be defiled by our unholiness, which of course is impossible, 
God to be un, uh, defiled by our unholiness or will be consumed. There isn't any in between. God lives among, a holy God lives among an unholy people either. He'll be defiled or we by his justice be consumed. So the question is, how is it that God's going to live amongst his people? That was a very important question for them because he had ordered them, instructed them to build a tabernacle. Uh, a movable tent, so everywhere they went, this tabernacle could go as well. And the significance of this tabernacle is that he would live in it. He would dwell there, thus dwell among his people. So the question was very real for them. How will we survive in the very presence of God? And it's an important question for us as well. Because as we read through the New Testament scripture, we read that we, that is the church, that is individual Christians as well, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That he lives within us. And he lives among us. And so how then is God going to live among us? Well, as we begin to search these scriptures in Leviticus, we find out how. Last Sunday was in the context of this burnt offering. Since God is holy and we are not, if he's to live in our presence, and we're to live in his, then somehow his justice against our sin must be satisfied. And somehow, we must be holy. And so God says, in in this opening part of the history of of redemption of human beings, He says, all right, here's how we're going to do it for now. For now, till Jesus comes, for now, I want you to bring, He said, in this burnt offering that we looked at last Sunday, I want you to bring this unblemished bull or sheep or goat, and if you can't afford all that, bring a bird, pigeon, turtle dove. Something to represent, to sub, be your substitute. And he said, these animals should be unblemished, thus recognizing that to live in the presence of God we must be holy. He said, I want you to touch it, I want you to put your hands on his head, and, and, and I want, so that it identifies with you, and you identify with it. You say, this represents me. I'm unholy, but, but, but it's unblemished. And then, that animal would be killed as an atoning sacrifice, and the blood taken. Because not only would we say it represents me so that I can stand unblemished before God, but also it takes the penalty of my sin. And that thing is killed, it's consumed. The whole thing in this burnt offering is consumed on the altar. And there's a sense in which as that worshiper walks away, he realizes that I should die, yet I live. And how should I live? Well, I should live now in newness of life. I should live now in life to God. After last Sunday, a lot of people asked me, they said, uh, how does this work? How does all, all these Old Testament sacrifices work? Uh, the, the logistics of all of that, because there were all kinds of sacrifices, and it was, it was messy, and it was smelly, and it was animals coming to church. Um, and the answer is, we don't quite know. It, it appears as if they knew some things that's not written down here in terms of the logistics. You figure they would... They would figure it out. There was probably a pretty smart priest that said, okay, get everybody in a line, you know. And let me walk down the line just to see that every, every animal is unblemished. And I'll send the non-unblemished ones or the blemished ones. I'll send them home. Uh, there had to be some practical ones among them. But, but it would take time. And it would, in fact, be messy and smelly and, and all of that. Because there were morning and evening sacrifices, and there were sacrifices on the Sabbath, and there were sacrifices on the first day of the month, and there were festivals at various times of year. Uh, And these particular offerings that we're reading about in the first five chapters of Leviticus were brought as voluntary offerings by individuals. That someone who had a devotion to God, 
someone who wanted to express something to God, could bring, as in last week, a burnt offering, and this week, a grain offering. Now, this grain offering is awfully interesting, because on the one hand, it's a, it's a non-bloody sacrifice. It's not an animal sacrifice. It's the bringing of grain, and, and things made with grain. So it's different in, in that regard. And you could, you could bring an offering of fine flour mixed with oil, with some frankincense on it. And you could bring that as an offering to the Lord. And the, the priest would take a portion of what you brought, not all of it, but just a, a memorial, if you will, just a portion of it, and they would burn that on the altar. But the rest would go to the priest. You might remember that uh, the, the Levites, the priestly tribe in ancient Israel, didn't have any land. The other tribes got land. The Levites didn't get land. They were to tend to the temple and the tabernacle and, and the things of God, if you will, in that regard. And so for them to survive, they had to take food that was given to them. Uh, and so uh, they, they, people would bring this grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil and frankincense. Some would be burned, but the bulk of it would go to the priests. They could bring, people could bring um, an offering of, 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 of bread, loaves or wafers, with oil and frankincense again. And that could be broken into pieces and, and some then put on the altar. You could bring a, a first fruit offering, that is, of the beginning of the harvest as you just start seeing uh, uh, your grain ripen. You could bring some as an offering to the Lord as well. But the question is, why? Why did God institute such a sacrifice? And why would people be moved to bring such a sacrifice? And we can think, well, maybe, maybe there's some, some, some help in, in all the details, you know. They would bring, bring fine flour, and that makes sense to bring this gift of fine flour to the Lord. But you mix it with oil. Why? Was it just because of, it made it more practical? It helped, you know, if you just brought fine flour and you tried to throw that on the altar, it would be a mess. But if you put a little oil in there, then, then you have some flower gunk. I wouldn't have made a very good priest. That probably isn't the right terminology. I don't know what that is in Hebrew. Um, but that would help, probably, in the, in, the, in the burning process. So maybe it was just practical. Or maybe God was communicating something else. It's, it's just difficult to know because the scripture isn't explicit at that point. We have to be careful not to go too far beyond and sort of make things up. Because oil is often in scripture a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But how would that there's frankincense that's put on this sacrifice as well. It would uh, scent it so it would smell better. Was that simply practical? Because it probably smelled pretty bad around the altar most of the time uh, when you think about what went on there. But So maybe that was helpful. But maybe it was a reminder to people that this sacrifice was something sweet that would smell to God. He, he, would, he would receive this with joy. The bread that was made was to be unleavened. That could very well be because to bring an offering to God, nothing in your offering should be open to decaying as leaven decays and ferments. Perhaps that's true. It was to be sprinkled with salt. There was a, 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 this expression that's even used here, this covenant with salt, this covenant of salt. As we read through the Old Testament, we find this expression uh, popping up in covenants between people and also between people and God. This covenant of salt, because salt was a purifying agent. Salt was something that, that, that made the rest pure, and salt was a permanent fixture. It wouldn't burn in the fire. And perhaps it's saying that this is to be a pure sacrifice to God, a sacrifice that is 
permanent. That speaks of something true between the two of you, and it will always be true. Perhaps that was the case. Again, it's difficult to know, but this we do know. That though the Bible calls this, and our translations call this a grain offering, it's only called a grain offering because it's composed of grain. It's comprised of grain. It's the bringing of grain in one way or another. But the little word for offering here means essentially a gift or a tribute. There's a very memorable little story in the book of Judges. Uh, The two main characters, one is named Ehud, the other is named Eglon. Now, I won't tell you why it's memorable, because if you can't remember, then I suppose it isn't so memorable after all. But if you read the story in Judges chapter 3, not now, but some other time you'll find why it's, why it's a memorable story. If you read it to your children, especially if you have children, they'll like it. Uh, it's one of those gross, good Old Testament stories. But the reason I bring that up is because this little word for offering is used there, because, because Eglon was the king of the Moabites. And at that point in history, the Moabites had their thumb on the Israelites. And Ehud had been chosen by God to go to Eglon and defeat him in some way to free the Israelites. And in order to get an audience with Eglon, Ehud had to bring an offering. And he brought a gift. He brought a tribute to him. That's this word. And you see, it's a fitting kind of word because in the ancient world... If you had a situation where there was a lord or a monarch or a king, and he had a group of people who served him, they would bring him tribute. They would bring him gifts. And in the, in, 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 in the best case scenario, in a good world, the reason they would bring this, these gifts is because the lord had been kind and gracious. And the lord, you see, uh, was recognized that the lord owned the means of production, uh, the land and even the people. And so when they, when they produced something, they said, part of this is a gift to the owner. Part of this is the gift to our Lord. Part of this is a gift to our King. And you see, in our relationship with God, he says, when you live with me, I'm worthy of gifts. Because, you see, I own everything. And so, whatever it is that you have, comes from me. And so on the one hand, God is saying, I'm worthy of this. And on the other hand, he's teaching them and giving them an opportunity to be grateful. So that an offerer could come, a worshiper could come with this grain offering and say, I acknowledge that you're God. I acknowledge that you're the Lord. I acknowledge that everything belongs to you. I acknowledge that that everything that I have comes from you. And I realize that, and, and, and look, here's evidence that you've provided for me. And so now I'm coming with this offering to tell you thanks, to be grateful. Because I realize that no matter how hard I've worked, still that energy's come from you. No matter how wise I've been, still that wisdom comes from you. No matter how much effort I've put in, that effort comes from you. And I realize then that this is, this is from you, so I bring you this gracious, this gift, this tribute because of your grace. Your grace to me. And so you see, God is saying, if you're going to live in my presence, you must be grateful. It's a very startling verse, and I say it that way, because it comes at a part, one of the darkest parts of the New Testament, 
darkest in the context of speaking about our souls. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, there's a verse that's startling to me. And this is a section of scripture that speaks of the wrath of God coming upon us uh, because we don't worship him. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, I get the first part. All right. We deserve your wrath because we don't honor you. But, but just giving thanks, come on. Is it that big a deal? And the answer is yes. When it's God, it's that big a deal. Because you see, to honor him is to give him thanks. Because to honor him is to say, you're God and I'm not. I'm completely dependent upon you. And everything I have comes from you. Therefore, giving God thanks is the very essence of worship. And God says, when you live among me, when I live in your midst, I'm worthy of your worship. Have you ever tried to teach anyone gratefulness? Parents know this. We know that, that it doesn't take too long for our children to sort of walk around the house or even crawl around the house with a sense of entitlement. That, that, that this is mine. This is my domain. This is mine. And I deserve it. And I deserve servants. I call them mom and dad, but I deserve servants. And parents realize, no, there comes a point in time when we've got to teach gratefulness. This really struck home. With me, especially, and I suspect with Karen, with, with me, about 24, 25 years ago. See, I was about seven. <laughs> and I guess I'd been married about seven, six or seven years at that time. But we had a friend who was a social worker, and she came to us with this, with this proposal. Uh, there was a 15-year-old boy that had come to her who had uh, been on drugs and had beaten up his mother and had run away from home, and uh, had come, he was, had been living in Kentucky, where his home was, and had run off to the beach in South Carolina. We were living in South Carolina at the time. And so she came to us and she said, there's a, tr- a great deal of difficulty in trying to place this kid with a family until we can arrange for him to go home, and we don't even know if that's ever going to be possible. But would you take him? And at that time, Karen and I had a youth deal going on in that community with a lot of kids. And we had, we had a number of senior high boys who were very mature in the Lord. And so we went to these boys. We called them our elders. And we went to these boys and we said, if we take in this 15-year-old kid, will you help us? And they said, yes. So we took him in. And uh, we took him in really for the long haul. We didn't know how long he would be with us. But we assumed that he would probably be with us uh, until he graduated from high school. Because given his circumstances, his parents did not particularly want him back. His mother was still healing, and he didn't want to go back. Uh, and so we took him, and, uh, and, and all seemed to be going pretty well. He was doing his homework. Uh, uh, he seemed to not be doing drugs any longer. Uh, he went to church with us, though he never became a Christian, uh, as far as we know. But um, um, there was something boiling inside me. Just kind of aggravating me. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I felt really bad about it because I, quite frankly, pretty, felt pretty good about myself for taking in this kid. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm awfully nice. And, and yet there was something going on in me that was really troubling. And I, I realized after a while what it was. Even though he seemed like he was doing okay, there, was, there were times when he would complain. Even though he was eating our food and 
wearing clothes we had bought him and spending money that we had given to him. There was just something about it. He seemed to be getting this attitude as if he deserved to be there. And that was very troubling to me. And so I began to try to get in touch with my inner self uh, before I got in touch with him. And so the analysis was we've got to teach him gratefulness. And about the only way to teach someone to be grateful is to convince them that they don't deserve what they have. So we had to begin talking to him about what he deserved. We had been talking about uh, about all that. And, and it was conflicting because on the one hand, you, you really hate to force someone to say thank you. But yet on the other hand, it was very important that he learn that lesson. And so God sets up this sacrifice in the midst of his people and says, if you want to belong to me, if you want to dwell among me, with me, and I dwell among you, then you have to understand that you will be grateful. And the only way you're going to be grateful if you really understand who I am and who you are and understand this grace that I've given to you. Because you see, our tendency is the more secure, the more feeling of security we have, Oftentimes, the less grateful we are. We read this passage a couple of weeks ago when Jerry Bridges was here, but let me read it again. Deuteronomy in chapter 8. We read it often because it's what I refer to as the American passage. Deuteronomy in chapter 8, verse 11. Moses writes, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. So he writes to them at a time when, when they've been um, redeemed, and they've been delivered out of Egypt, out of the slavery they had been in. And now they're entering into this land of plenty. So he says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, because you live in America, then... Your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty grounds uh, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You see, the more we have, the more secure we get, the more likely we are to forget God. You would think it would be the opposite. You would think that the more we have, the more grateful we'd be. And then just think back of Christmas morning with your children. The more we have, the more frustrated we get. The more we have, the more greedy we get. The more we have, the more likely it is that we're going to elevate ourselves and forget how we got it. And so God is teaching them gratefulness by saying, remember your past. Remember you were slaves. Remember you couldn't get out of that situation. Remember you were in places where there was no food and I fed you miraculously. Remember there was no, uh, you were in places where there was no water and I gave it to you. Remember those times. Now when it's not so obvious, now when things seem to be going like normal life, now when you get up in the morning and, and go to work, you get up in the morning and go to the fields and things are produced and things come out of the ground and you do this for a little while... Don't ever think 
that I'm not needed in this. Don't ever think that this hasn't come from me. Your tendency will be to think that way. And so God gives them the sacrifice. Right in the midst of their worship, he says, one of the ways you worship me is by obviously being grateful. So you take a little bit of what I've given you, not all of it, because that would defeat the purpose. If you gave me all your food, you'd die. So take what I've given you, this food, and bring me some. Not because I'm hungry, not because I need it, but to show what I've given to you so you can look at that and say, wow, look what God has given to me. I don't deserve this, but but God who owns everything has been gracious to me and enabled me to have food. I'm not entitled to it, but, but he's given it to me because we live in his midst. And so I'm bringing this as a reminder and bringing this as a way to be able to say thank you. And so you see, this is very much a thank offering to God. And he says, so this is how you live with me. You thank me. Now, if he were a human being, we'd say, that's awfully arrogant on his part to demand that people thank him. But he's not a human being. He's God. He actually does own it all. He does have rights to all of it. It really is all his. And we're not entitled. It's from his grace. Think about it. In the context of our own lives, Shouldn't we, as they, offer this sacrifice of thanksgiving to God? You see, on a given day, a worshiper might be overwhelmed with this God and his dwelling in his midst and all that he has. And so he says, I'm going to take some of this to God and I'm going to offer him thanks in recognition of the fact that I belong to him and the fact that he owns everything, the fact that he has been gracious to me and enabled me to live. And so this offering of love is for him. It's not payback. That'd be silly. And we have to be very careful that it's not superstitious to say, well, if I do this, then God will bless me even more. That would be insulting to God. But done with the right heart, it's a blessing. A sweet-smelling savor, as the scripture says, aroma to God to say, ah, here's a grateful people. You see, in the context of our own lives, too, we realize that everything we have really does indeed come from God. There's a Verse in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul is writing, obviously, to the church in Corinth about a variety of things, and, and one of the things he has to do is to humble them. And, and uh, so, here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 7, in the middle of that verse, he puts it like this. He says, what do you have that you have not received? He says, what do you have that you've not received? Now, I have to be honest with you, that's a question that I carry with me all the time. Um, I don't know when I first came upon it in that particular way, but but it's just always stuck with me. Bill, what do you have that you haven't received? Isn't everything you have a gift from God? And so I look at my family, I look at cars, I look at houses, I look at knowledge, I look at peace, I look at everything. Even the difficulties of life. What do you have that you've not received. And then he goes on to say, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Why why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why are you acting as if somehow you merited this? Why are you acting as if somehow this came from you? No, it came from God. You're to worship Him. 
And so we realize that everything that we have comes from him. If we have good health, it came from him. If we have medicine to help us have good health, it came from him. It was his common grace that came that helped someone be wise enough to put that medication together so that we could have it. It comes from God. Oh, you can thank the person who came up with it, the chemist, and you can thank the company that sold it to you. But, but don't forget, it came from God. That's why I started the service with that announcement that said, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's true. He will supply all of our needs. We sang about it uh, in our opening hymn, in fact, it says, Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustainest. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? I don't know if you caught that when you were singing, but what you were saying was, all my needs are met in the decrees of God, what he ordains for me. If you don't see it right now, wait a while and look back. And you'll see that everything you need, He's ordained. He supplies all our needs. And thus He says, now come and give me thanks. But it isn't just our possessions, of course. We understand our whole life, our salvation, our relationship with Him, comes from God. Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We read a passage like that. and I don't know, when I read a passage like that, to be honest with you, it just sucks all the air out of me. I mean, I read that and I say, could that be true? That before the foundations of the world, God said, I want you. And he set a destiny through Christ and his work that would result in me being adopted as his child. And he redeems me, forgives my sin, all of that. His work, and it's by grace, he said. Not by anything you've done, but simply by grace. And I have to be honest with you, I sit before passages like that, and all the air gets sucked out of me because I can't even imagine. But yet it's true. And then I realize what it is that I do deserve, and yet I, then I realize what it is that I get. But more importantly, I realize why I get it. I get it because God decided to give it. And thus I realize that everything I have, physically, spiritually, is because I've received it. That is, it's been given to me as a gift 
And the question is, well, well how do I live in the midst of that? How, I, how do I live in the midst of that? And, 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 and at least this I should be grateful. At least this I should offer to God. Thanksgiving, in fact, the scripture in, in the Psalms, even though it's heavily doused with sacrifice, it says what's really most important uh, in all of this isn't the sacrifice per se, but the heart behind it. I preached a couple of weeks ago from Psalm number 50, and Psalm 50 and verse 14. The psalmist writes, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Oh yes, of course. In fact, the marginal note in my particular version of the Bible, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. By the way, we have a bunch of ESVs back there. If you're finding yourselves not being able to follow me and want that version, you can pick one of those up. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving in the marginal note. It says that could be translated, make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. Oh, yeah. See, we come not with grain anymore, not with bulls and goats and so forth and so on, which I'm really happy about. I like this way of doing it much better than that. Plus, Jesus has come. But we don't offer grain anymore. But what, what, what do we offer in the whole context of what God has done for us, this recognition? We live in Him, He in us. It should be a life lived with thanksgiving, with gratefulness. And the way that we learn gratefulness is we compare what it is that we have been given with what it is that we deserve to have. And that is to well up in us gratefulness. So we're to make thanksgiving now our sacrifice. Verse 23 of that same psalm, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. In Psalm 107 and verse uh, 22, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. In Psalm 116, we read the the same thing, essentially. Verse 17, I offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And as you see, that's to be now the sacrifice. We live in the presence of God. We're to offer him thanks. But think again about what he's given us. He hasn't just given us bread. He's given us life. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. By what did he mean? He meant that in him, in faith in him, there's sustenance for spiritual life. And so what we have from God is, is life. Now, if you can think about this, what they got was grain, at least at that particular point in time, for that particular sacrifice. So they took some of that grain and they offered it to the Lord. Since we've been given life, what should we give as our gift of thanks? Not to pay God back. Not to say, well, you've done so much for me, well, I at least owe you this. It isn't a matter of owing. Shouldn't we give him life? Romans, chapter 12, and verse 1. The Apostle writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And if you would read Romans, chapter 1, through Romans, chapter 11, you'll find that what Paul is talking about is the mercies of God. He's saying, your salvation comes by grace, through the mercies of God. He's been merciful with you. And so, given that, Given that you're a recipient of the mercy of God, what should be your response? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He said, you know, the reasonable response to the mercy of God, once you've received it, is to give Him your life. Not payback. 
Because I still think that would be a bad deal from God's perspective. Not payback. We can't pay back. But just as a reasonable response. He's given you life. How do you express thanks? By life. And when he says offer your bodies, he doesn't mean your body, body. He means the things that your body does. For instance, in Romans in chapter 6 and verse 13, he puts it this way. He says, do not present your members, that is the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And so, in our bodies, you see, we're to honor him. That's what it means to, 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 to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because we've been given life. Given life. And now our sacrifice of thanksgiving is to give Him our lives. Meaning to live to glorify Him. Meaning to live to honor Him. Meaning to live to show Him to be great. Think about for a minute your own life. Spiritual life. The very fact, if you're a believer in Christ, that you have eternal life. Where did that come from? You obviously know people who don't believe, and yet you do. Where? What's the difference between you and them? It must be God. Doesn't that just floor you? Suck the air right out of you? And then he says, okay, I've given you this life, now live. Well, how would I live? Well, I would live by offering my life to him, gratefully. Not because I have to, but because I want to. This is my sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, think of your, your life. If it was lived as a sacrifice to God in thanksgiving to Him, uh, how, would, how would our love for each other be? How would our love for the hurting be? How would our compassion for those in need be? How would our willingness to forgive be? How would our patience be? Okay. How would our integrity be? How would our sexual purity be? Give your life as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. Just one more thing. We're going to sing in a minute a song which has as one of its phrases Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, that little expression, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, really does fit, doesn't it? Because when we think about what God has done for us, what he's given to us, and, and, and it wells up within us thanksgiving, and just very naturally speaking, we'd, we'd love to to express our thanks to Him. Well, what can we give Him to express our thanks? Well, if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would even be too small. There isn't enough in the whole world to give Him as an offering of thanks. So I give Him my life. But, but I have to be honest with you. That doesn't seem quite enough. <laughs> Does it? I mean, really. When I think about the context of my own life, what is that? But then I realize this, that I give to him my life 
in Christ. See, Jesus was not only a gift to us and for us, but when we come before the Father to give Him thanks, we come in Jesus. And so when I give my life, I give my life in Jesus to God. And He is enough. Because you see, He is worth the whole world. See, He is the worthiest of all for the worthiest of all. And so when I come in Him, Jesus is even sufficient there. So I can come and I can say, here, receive my life, God. And I have to be honest, when I do that, I have this little grin going, it ain't much. But then I realize, I come to him in Christ, and he's much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful grace, wonderful kindness to us. I pray now, that as we break this bread and we consider this juice before us and all that it symbolizes, that you would set it apart in a way that would cause us to realize that there is nothing we have that we haven't received. And you've brought it all to us because of Christ and through him. So I pray, Father, you'd set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that would bring us into his presence. And that you would put within us a right sense of thanksgiving and a right offering of ourselves in him to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.